Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Tamara Thomas, editor-in-chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome to Urban Health Weekly, where we talk about medical news and health topics that matter to you. I'm Tamara Thomas, and I'm here with Lou. How are you? I'm doing great today. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. You sound tired. Oh, I don't know. I think it's uh, that time of the year where uh, voices are gravelly and all that allergy season. Oh, that's right. All the pollen. My car is covered in like a yeah. fine coat of like yellow green. Fine coat of green. I, <laughs> I, I have a, an issue. It, I, I do it by the horse races. It starts right before the Kentucky Derby and it ends right after the Belmont States. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. So for those four weeks or five weeks, I'm usually miserable as something else blooms. You know, I I do have some allergic reaction, but it depends on the tree. It's not nearly yeah. as severe as it used to be. It, like if I'm driving with the window down, I'll get hit depending on what kind of trees it is. And I'm not sure exactly what trees, but I know some trees make me cough and others mm. don't. So I I semi-understand. You must be miserable right now. Yeah, I wouldn't call it miserable, um, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way. What do you mean pretty much the same way? That different uh, different trees and different parts of the allergy season set me off in different ways. So. Ah. Well, before we begin, I want to apologize to Lou because he expressed last time that he was unable to get a word in during the obesity segment, and he was absolutely right. But I will personally be more mindful to make a concerted effort to give you an opportunity to jump in going forward. Yep. The videotape showed I had my hand up. I was waving it. Well, okay, there was no videotape, but duly noted, <laughs> you you did not get a word in edgewise, and the segment suffered for it. So I apologize. No moving problem. forward, things are going to be different. I promise. Usually we cover a bevy of topics, but today we're going to keep it light and tight and just cover two topics. All right. First, let's talk about what's hot in the news right now. Brazilian butt lifts are the most deadly cosmetic procedure. Listen to this. In surgical circles, the Brazilian butt lift is known as the deadliest aesthetic procedure ever performed. And despite several calls to improve outcomes, recent data suggests mortality is only getting worse, especially in South Florida. Sunny, image-conscious Miami is home to a substantial portion of the country's high-volume, low-cost clinics where U.S. patients flock for the procedure. Despite widely publicized deaths and changes in rules about performing the procedure in Florida, researchers say it's still causing harm. Doctors recently published an analysis of the factors that make South Florida a particularly dangerous place for the BBL, which is also known as gluteal fat grafting. They analyzed 25 BBL deaths resulting from pulmonary fat embolism, where fat globules 
travel through the bloodstream and cut off circulation. Blocked pulmonary vessels can lead to respiratory failure and death. They found most of the deaths occurred after plastic surgery associations tried to make the procedure safer. Dang. The Brazilian butt lift became popular over the last two decades with procedures surging more than 800% over the last decade alone, according to data from the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. During a BBL, a surgeon uses liposuction to remove fat from the abdomen, flanks, or back of an anesthetized patient. The surgeon then uses a syringe attached to a cannula to re-inject or graft the reserved fat into the buttocks. The cannula is inserted repeatedly deep under the skin, fanning out from a few small incision points to distribute the fat across different areas. It's known as a blind procedure and surgeon can inadvertently injure the large vessels in the muscle or even inject fat directly into those vessels if the cannula goes too deep. The fat can travel via the bloodstream to the heart and lungs and deaths from a pulmonary fat embolism can occur within hours of the procedure or even on the operating table. Oh my God. It wasn't until recently that plastic surgeons realized some BBL procedures were going very wrong. While the surgical literature shows that the vast majority of deaths from BBLs occur when a patient suffers a PFE, these events are hard to quantify because of different reporting standards for various state medical examiners. BBL complications are even harder to track because of limited follow-up by clinics that perform them and few state reporting requirements. There's a ton more to this article. I'm kind of skipping around, yeah, but uh, I'm going to stop here. So let's, discuss, let's yeah. discuss. All right. I got to say, in the article or in, in the research that I did, there are 81,000 of these a year. So over the next decade, there will be 1 million fake booties out there. Um, that's okay. That, that's either good or bad. But did you say fake booties? Yeah, that's what they are. Is it I, technically a fake booty if it's your fat? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Because okay. it is not for ordained that way. That said, if we add up all the deaths, it's a lot of deaths too. Well, somewhere I read that at least each doctor in Florida has had at least one death. Yeah. There's one in three. Every 3,000 procedures, there's one death. That's a lot. That's a lot of them. That's so an you, awful lot. If you start doing the math and you say, okay, <clears throat> over the next five or six years, we're going to have a million of these done. That's a lot of people that passed away. And for what? I'll tell you. In the article, they quoted a doctor, and I, I thought to myself, I don't know, but he kind of makes sense. He said, no one ever died of a skinny butt. He did. And, I read that part. <laughs> and, um, and I kind of tend to agree. I, I mean, some things, uh, there's a little bit going a, a bit too far, and I think this goes a bit too far. Well, you know, no one said that when white women were flocking to get breast implants. But, and I, and I hate to distill this down to race, so I'm going to try to say maybe making more of a, a cultural case. And I'm not saying I advocate this procedure, but I can't really, I can't really pull on the procedure because I myself partake of the lunchtime procedures, et cetera. Uh, I had breast implants put in when I was young and I had them removed and I had a breast lift. And so 
I, I'm the last one to talk about procedures and enhancements and stuff like that. And I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you have to you know, deal with what God gave you. But with the advent of Jennifer Lopez's and the Beyonce's and the video vixens, the, the, the body shape, the ideal body shape. Well, the, all, the ideal body shape has always been a curvy woman, but the, the big butt is what came from, it's, it shifted from the Pam Anderson big boobies to the Jennifer Lopez big behind. And, you know, you listen to rap songs and you watch the videos and the girls that are most desired, women that are most desired, are the ones with the big round derrieres. So now it is now it is, but that well, yeah. wasn't that wasn't the aesthetic maybe three or four years ago. That wasn't the national aesthetic, <laughs> but that has always been the black and Hispanic aesthetic. Women, you know, women of different races are starting to to get into it. Um, get into it. Look, I, I've done my it's research. A huge, it's a huge market. I did I'm my just research. Saying that it's always been uh, it's always been a thing for women of color. It's always been a thing for women of yeah, color. There was really nothing you could do prior to this procedure to get it done, except maybe fly to Brazil, because they they pretty much perfected this kind of stuff, the bunda. Well, there's a the lot of stuff of that bunda. goes over there that I would call non-FDA approved. Um, and med insurance would not cover it here. So obviously right. the procedure- But I don't, think the, I don't think the procedure so much is the problem as the way that it's being done and marketed and my issue with it is and you tell me what your issue with it is my issue with it is all these quickie doctors and these cheap procedures that are being done six seven eight times in a day rotating you know with doctors rotating from one room to the next room into the next room and not focusing one doctor said that you're not really supposed to do more than three of these a day and you've got some doctors doing as many as 11 of these a day. That's completely unsafe. And that possibly means that the doctor is not the only one working on the patient. That's where you start running into the problem is, you know, you have this, the lure of get a Brazilian butt lift for $39.99 or $29.99, meaning three or $4,000. And you scrape your money together and you fly down there or you take a bus down there and you get it done. And I think that's the bigger issue. But what what's your take on this? Well, my take is that number one, I think this is a temporary aesthetic. Uh, these aesthetics come and go. What is uh, temporary? You only lose about, I think, you only lose about 20%. No, I'm just saying the- The, the trend of it? The trend of it, the, the, the model of beauty. Well, that's what they said about breast implants. And people hey, look, you know, you, I, I like classic art. If you look at Oya and all of that, there was one, you know, they, they call them the Rubenesque uh, area, era, and that's because of Rubens. He was the painter that painted all those women. That's why it's called Rubenesque. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they were hefty, then they were skinny in the 70s. Now, all of a sudden, the the ultimate of beauty is the big vibe and, and all this. I think people should just be who they are. That's um, very easy but... to say. You're a man, so it's a, it's a slightly different value proposition. And I'm not saying that I would ever do this, but I'm in a different position because I'm happy with my behind. If you're from a culture that values a woman with a shapely behind and you don't have a shapely behind, 
you feel left out and you feel like maybe your life will be better and you'll feel happier in filling out your genes. I, I, look, I, I'm, people are not going to stop doing it. They just have to make it safer. Um, and they have to limit how many times a day doctors are allowed to do this. And the reason they're doing it so many times is because they're deep discounting it. And who could resist? I mean, I would never. But who could resist um, a procedure that's rock bottom price? And this is what's killing people is that you have to be careful what you pay. You Like you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you do this, you're paying with your life. That's that's what I think the issue is. Right, right. Not so much the procedure. I wouldn't like to see a ban on the procedure, but I would like there to be limits on how many times this procedure can be done per day, per doctor, yeah. highly supervised, make sure that they're the only one actually doing the work. And you know what? The price is going to go up and that's okay. And then, you know, less women mm -hmm. are going to be able to afford to do it. And I'm kind of okay with that because I would rather you not afford to do it or save your money and get it done right than to take your life into your hands and leave your family behind and bereft because you want a discount. I think it's high risk, low return. And to me- How can you say that? How can you put a, a, a how can you say that about someone's happiness? I don't know. I mean, you you really are happier because you've got a bigger butt. I mean, Some people feel that they will be. You you fill out your cards. And again, I'm not advocating this. I'm just putting myself in the position of a person who does not feel they have a an attractive derriere or attractive figure. And if they can get some lipo and move things around. I'm also worried about the health implications in terms of you may move this fat around on your body and turn yourself from an apple to a pear, but then does that really change your health on the inside? No, it doesn't. So I worry about that. That's another big thing. I've talked about this before. Okay. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So we're going to take a break. And we'll be right back. Right. And we're back. So let's jump into gender disparity in sexual health counseling of cancer patients. Well, you've got the expert right here. Let's jump into the it. Expert. Okay, let's jump in. So listen to this. In recent years, studies have revealed a startling disparity in how the medical sciences treat men and women. 
Most studies looking at different ailments and how to treat them involve men, which means that physicians often aren't as well equipped to deal with female issues compared to male health issues. One of these disparities is reflected in how cancer patients are counseled about the sexual side effects of cancer treatments. Recent research efforts have uncovered significant differences in how male and female cancer patients receive counseling. In fact, the study found that most female cancer patients do not receive counseling about the potential sexual side effects of treatment once they begin cancer treatment. This is despite the fact that plenty of women tend to experience high rates of sexual dysfunction during cancer treatment, with 90% of women experience sexual dysfunction compared to only 6% of men. Wow. Only one in 10 women were asked about their sexual health while undergoing therapy, while a whopping nine in 10 men with genital urinary, urinary cancer were asked about their sexual health. Okay. May I jump in here? Uh, now, that, absolutely. Now that we have a meritocracy here. All right. There's there's a lot of things that are wrong here. This and is a once, lot to unpack. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. And for once, I'm going to go against my gender and say that, hmm, something is rotten. They used to say something is rotten in Denmark back mm -hmm. in the day, but I don't I, I don't want to offend anybody that's uh, from Danish. Denmark. Yeah. Danish here. So there's, there's something wrong here inherently. So... If we look at the study itself, one of the things that was pointed out is that during the clinical trial, men's sexual satisfaction after was one of the things that was brought up during the, um, during the clinical trial, meaning it was a question and it was a follow-up item. So it was part of the trial and it was part of getting this treatment accepted. That was not the case for the woman's treatment. And if we look at it, it's pretty much the same thing. We're talking about a brachiotherapy treatment mm -hmm. for prostate cancer and for, for cervical cancer. Right. So it's pretty much the same thing. I, I realize there are some gender differences. Of course. But it's the same type of treatment, same modality, more or less the same side effects. Yet, during the clinical trial for men, nothing was, there was no stone left unturned and there were a lot of follow-up questions as to sexual health. For the clinical trial for women, wasn't even a question. It was like question number 40 or something like that had absolutely no relevance. So right away, we start with a problem. You want more? Of course. Okay, then here's the second problem. For women... Go ahead, P.T. Barnum. That's right. Do you want more? Okay. <laughs> All right. Men, we are very lucky that there are a lot of treatments for some of the problems that come in. There's obviously Viagra and Cialis that's, that's, a, uh, that's given to you uh, afterwards to help your, your function. There's implantable devices, there's outside devices, inside devices. There's about four or five different solutions that's offered to a man uh, during the aftercare. And I happen to know because I just had a close relative who had uh, prostate cancer, and he's almost 80 years old, and he was laughing that he was being sexually counseled, and, and he was basically saying, like, doesn't this doctor know I'm 80 years old? I go... Nah, man, come on, you can still, he's going, no, 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 they're offering me all this stuff. 
So I told him, well, take it and give it to me. And then he said, <laughs> absolutely not. No, you didn't. He, he was honest. Well, maybe I did. I don't know. I'll, I'll take the fifth on that one. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that men get or have the access to a lot of things to enhance their sexual performance uh, after some of these surgeries, procedures, and things like that. Women who are here crickets, I think, you know, I without being too graphic here, basically the only thing that's given to them is here's some lube. That's it. That's all that's that that if that. If if that and it's suggested, it's not prescribed. Because another thing is that because you have this procedure as a man, you get all this stuff as part of your insurance. So you get it for free. If you're a woman. Nothing. Again, credits, nothing. It's sort of like, oh, okay. Well, so the article continues and says, and says that um, according to researchers, physicians tend to discuss male dysfunction more often because there are more treatment options, like you just said, mm -hmm. for patients with prostate cancer, while cervical cancer has limited treatment options. Men also have access to more tools or resources, such as implants and medications that can help them beat sexual dysfunction. They also say that this disparity may be because doctors are likely to be less comfortable discussing sexual health with female patients. Now, this is the part that I'm interested in because mm -hmm. I looked up, I, I, I was curious the percentage of female uh, urologists. Women urologists represent 10% of yeah. the urology workforce. If it's only 10%, then that makes sense that a male urologist would feel uncomfortable uh, talking about you know sexual health with a woman for a number of reasons but bigger than that the idea that women are not sexual creatures mm -hmm. um i think is the larger issue yeah in my mind that well you know once a woman is a certain age she's out to pasture anyway and she doesn't need she doesn't need sex and she she's not a sexual person she's yeah. past her reproductive years and yeah that's that no, and you're you're absolutely right. And I, I'm going to go back to the numbers in a minute, mm -hmm. but I'm going to just point out that this is a process and a procedure where you usually have lots of years of life afterwards. Right. These cancers are not that sentence. Right. And they usually happen, you know, to men in their 50s, maybe 60s, where they still have some, I'm not going to call them reproductive uh, per se, but Well, no, reproductive because a man can can give you know can father children way look tony randall was it was oh, 70 when he had a child i mean you know the more money and the more famous you are the longer the longer that lasts but at the end of the day um i i think reproductive years uh i think functional years let's call them functional years so the in both cases there's a lot of uh functional years left to both cases however they pretty much take the women and ignore the fact that these things exist. There's no, there's no aftercare. There's, it doesn't even get brought up. And this is the point that you made that I want to kind of talk a little bit about. Yes, please. The, the patient funnels come in two ways. With the men, it's typically the urologist that, as you said, as you correctly straightened it out, 90% of them are male. That's where, that's the pathway for the men. The pathway or the funnel for the women comes from the OBG, which in many cases is female. There are more female OBGs than male. These are the, those are the numbers. Uh -huh. Now, 
what happens is once you're diagnosed with the cancer, you get funneled in to the same pool, which is the oncologist. And that oncologist, even though there's a, a high percentage of females, and by high, I mean relatively high, 60 to 70% are male. No, that's still, that's yeah. still not enough. Okay. So so now you're starting to see where that is. By the way, these numbers are all over the place. Some mm -hmm. say it's about 30%. Some say it's 40%. In terms of what? In terms of the, the ratio of female urologists to, to male urologists. These numbers are all over the place. Well, I'm just This is in, just a cursory in, research. Yeah, in, in terms of urologists. JAMA says 30%. Yeah. Um, basically from the list that I know of, from the AMA list, uh, that we have about, uh, it's not quite 90, but it's over 80% of male on mm -hmm. the urologist. That makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. Uh, it might just be reading That's per well. JAMA. That's per JAMA data. That, mm -hmm. That's a, a few years old, not, not that old. Uh, I think it's changing. I, I think if you go back, not I think, I know, because I was in the field many, many years ago, and uh, it was a very, very heavily male-dominated field. You it, Women urologists were far and few. Mm -hmm. I've been to the AUA convention, and you wouldn't see one. And that for years and years, that happened. And then all of a sudden, around 2005, 2010, bingo, there they were um, in terms of that. However, getting back to the, the thing, I don't think it should be that women treat women and men treat men. I think that's kind of kindergartenish here. I, I think you as a healthcare professional have a responsibility to treat either sex. And I agree with yeah. that, but we're also dealing with people, right? And I, so I think that, I think it's part of the doctor's training. Maybe there should be, and you know, that's kind of the conclusion that the article in the study said that there's a need here for retraining and there's a need for more um more sensitivity training and and it's not a taboo the doctor should if you're a male doctor and you're dealing with a woman and she just had cervical cancer and you're giving her you know her follow-up in the post-op and all this you were a surgeon and her oncologist and the person that's caring for her you absolutely have to figure and take into account her sexual history and i don't think that's done and her preferences, and, and this is what's going to happen, and give her some counseling. None of that is done. Okay. In 2019, um, there were 90.1% male urologists and 9.9% right. female urologists. This is from Gemma Network. Right. Okay. And that's so that's let's, let's go with that. Yeah. Okay. So let's that's go where my that. numbers were about 90%. I'm telling you that. 30 years ago, they were far and few between. And they're also saying that, that they're an aging population. Yeah. This, but, that may, but that may also be part of why they're not having these discussions mm -hmm. because the age and the discomfort with having these kinds of frank discussions mm -hmm. with a woman. Also, I suspect there's probably, a, you know, aside from the blushing part, I suspect there's a little bit of... Um, uh, self-preservation mm -hmm. just in terms of like I don't want her to construe this conversation as right. me coming on to her or yeah. uh, that I'm interested in her sex life I don't want to embarrass her um, th th there just needs to be some way that this becomes part of the regular routine uh, cancer aftercare yeah 
period. Yeah. And, and, and that's the problem. There's a relatability factor, obviously, man to man, where you're going to, that's going to be sort of top of mind because yeah. you're a man, you know how this, this thing works. But as a urologist, you know how that this works for women as well. And so there needs to be a more of a normalization of women's yeah. sexuality. That's, I'm not sure when that's going to happen. Maybe the urologist population needs to get younger. I'm, I'm just not sure how to fix I, it. You know, I, you can't I, make again, people comfortable. Again, I, I do know the numbers here. And unfortunately the numbers about the average age is about 55 mm. and that's cool. And and again, I don't want to be ageist. Really? Because you know, I'm, I'm up there. Patients are getting younger. Fifty-five is young compared to me. But well, I'm it, saying it, just in terms know. of the sensibility. But you know, even though I'm a decade older than that, I I don't think I'd have a problem um, talking to somebody and all that. But then again, I'm not in front of that patient and. I'm doing it in my mind and all that. Yes. What what happens when that person is in front of me? And it's what, always, what am I going to say? It's and, always easy being a Monday morning quarterback, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm, of course you should say that. And then, you know, you're confronted with the person and she's distraught. And am I going to add more misery to her? And then at the end of the day, there's really no pill, no gadget, no nothing for the woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's another problem that, right. that we have. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think if there were, say, um, for example, in cancer care, there are resources like there's a, a person that you can speak to, et cetera, outside of the, the, the yeah. and they're part of the team. They're right, part the of community the community oncology team, team the PA, right. the MP. The, right. What if there the were more people oncology. like that? Do you think that would make a difference? I'll, I'll tell that, you. That's, that's their job is to just have these conversations the with patients. Yes. And, you know, from from what I hear, from talking to oncologists and more importantly, from talking to my friends who unfortunately have cancer, when they get that diagnosis and they're being told and, and the doctor's going through the thing, it's pretty much like that stereotype of that movie where the person is mouth is moving. Yes. And I and and you know, these are the people that, that have talked to me are like, you know, lawyers, people or litigation lawyers or are people who are been in the front lines of whatever. Mm-hmm. And they say that when that diagnosis hits them, it's just like mind freeze. It's right. like things go in one ear and go out the other. Yes. And uh, it's almost like their light flashes before they hit. And saying it at that point and, you know, having your doctor checklist, I don't think it's enough. I, I think that, as you correctly again said, there has to be some community. And by community, I mean the community of care. Right. Some community of care involvement. There has to be proper handouts. There has to be a care program that takes into consideration. This is a person who's going to be alive for the next 25 years. What are we going to do? Or, or 30 years. The life expectancy after this, on an average, is at least two decades. So what are we going to do to help this person live those years in a happy manner? I wonder if maybe as part of the paperwork, just like they ask you about, uh, you know, the, the try to determine the financial toxicity of treatment, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, an option. Would you like to discuss uh, sexual health options um after your treatment 
and check yes or no if if it's something important to you. I think you bring it up. I think you bring it up whether they people they are embarrassed it. about and also you know, and also some people feel vain talking about it. Some people yeah. feel embarrassed talking about it. Some people feel shy talking about it. I think um I think it should be the the woman's choice and the man's choice. I, I, I'm I mean, you your your relative was obviously a very uncomfortable having that discussion, mostly because of his age. He was uncomfortable at age, but you know what? He didn't have a problem bringing it up with me and asked me all the questions. It, 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 it's just like the setting and the time. Mm -hmm. And then when he went for like round three with the doctor, he did have a, a lengthy discussion about uh, about the side effects and the prostate cancer and what to expect and what happened six months afterward. So your question, is your relative is your relative sexually active? Not at this point. Uh at this time he's a widower. Okay. Uh so at first he goes, uh, but then after thinking about it after a while, he said, you know, it, it's like it's always good to know your options. He wasn't planning right. on doing anything, right. but it's always good to know your options. Right. And to know that, you know, that things can happen um, and, and that science can help things happen. So so that was that. And, and I, I think the conversation with me helped because I said, you know, I, I was joking when I said, well, get the stuff and give it to me. And, and then he, <laughs> he pretty much said, is it that good? And I'm there like, oh, yeah, man, get all that stuff. Just send it over to me. <laughs> So, and what kind of stuff did they offer? I'm uncomfortable discussing that type of thing, but uh, honestly, it's a, okay. Okay, right, you're you know what? I'm, I'm only kidding. I'm no, only okay, kidding. all right. I'm only no, kidding. No, seriously, if you're uncomfortable, then we won't we won't no. discuss it. Um, they but you, I am curious. They give you three types of options. Um, option A is you know the little blue pill, the little yellow pill, and you know a chemical intervention, oh. chemical stuff, and Take them and then see what happens, type of thing. Oh, so they offer that. Okay. I mean, that's the front line, the cheap line, mm -hmm. the the front and cheap. Then the the other one is a whole. Incontinence. Well, those don't cure the incontinence. No, I know they the don't cure the incontinence, but that's a big issue as well. Let's talk about sexual the incontinence. Yes, I know. One, they, just... they give you the diapers and, and, and good luck. Uh, really. Yeah. Well, you else? well you might piss your pants, but at least you'll be able to get rock hard. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's then, ridiculous. Then the, then the the second line of, of of defense is they they give you like rubber bands and 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 all that like a set of rubber bands and stuff that you you put on them. I'm not going to get into that too much over the ear, but you you know you use your imagination. Um, no, I really can't. Well, you, you you kind of put a rubber band on it after after you achieve erection, and it kind of keeps you keeps you that. Uh, they offer that. Uh huh. They got those. No way. Yes way. Again, Whoa. I said, dude, get some of this. And um, and then the third line is uh some device that he there's implantable devices and things like that. Oh wow! Which which I think is just like too ridiculous. Wow. And you know, this this makes um care for, for, for women seem like the dark ages. Oh yeah, you've got uh, all these options. I wasn't kidding when they give you a jar of lube and say good luck. That's that that's basically what the woman Do you gets. know a woman that, that that's happened to? No, because they don't even give it, it's, 
You know, it's just a jar of lube. I know it's not covered under insurance. Okay, but how do you know it's a, a jar of lubricant? That's all they have. Are you are you making that up? It's are you 40, making that up? Forty percent made up. Forty percent made up. Oh my god! He's making that. this up. <laughs> so you have no actual knowledge that they hand a woman a jar or a tube of lubricant. You don't know that for sure. Mm, well, they. <laughs> Okay. okay. I know that. I heard okay. No, 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 no. You don't know. You see, now I have to defend myself. The the number one symptom is vaginal dryness. Okay. Okay, that's the number one symptom to this procedure. Okay. Um, and and, and so you're extrapolating. So you're extrapolating. Okay, that's that the biggest problem. So if you're experiencing that, there really, there really hasn't been a lot of drug therapy right. for that. The only real therapy right now is some sort of lubricant. And it just feels like it's just in relation to men, now, not in relation now, to women I at will all. Say this. Because there's also, I imagine that, and I don't know this for a fact, yeah. but I imagine that if you go through a procedure like this, there's a loss of sex drive. So this doesn't really deal with the lack or loss of well, sex drive. The, I, I think the second the. The way it's been explained to people, and from what, from my knowledge, again, mm -hmm. again, I'm not a doctor, so I'm going. Of course, into right. The, the I, I, but, I, I, mm -hmm. but again, this is like 70, 80 percent informed. You just had a traumatic experience, you know. You, in terms of the cancer the, therapy, the all of this, you probably had a traumatic experience in terms of your pocket. Right. You're being offered things that you never really considered. And well, you never it, considered them because they don't really talk to you about this beforehand. Well, yeah. And also it's a progression because for the first five or six months, it is very difficult to be active. But then all of a sudden you start to heal. You start to feel better. You paid off your bill or whatever. Hopefully. And, and now you're back to business as usual. Like I said, you have a long life after that. Right. So now all of a sudden you're sitting there in a chair six months later, you're feeling good and you say, hey, you know, maybe it, it's time that, that I started exploring other options. Now, if you're a man, it's covered under insurance. Right. You get all this cool stuff and you've got options. All these goodies. Well, you know, you got option A, B, and C. I mean, there, there are nut, nut jobs, sorry out there, but that's uh, what I'm going to say. They go for option C, which is implantables and devices and erector sets and all of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to get flagged. But anyway, and it, no, it literally is. It's the device that you you press a button in your thigh and all of a sudden you can perform. Wow. Um, you know, but, you know, all these things are, are yours to explore. Um, what what uh, what happens is that we um, the woman, you know, they might um, they might give you an option, but you got to go to the store and buy it. It's not covered by insurance. Well, what option is there other than, like you said, the the lubricant? I I can't it. think of anything. That's about it. The, you know, the pain of the lubricant, and at the end of the day, it's like, you know, what what can you do? That's unfortunate. Yeah. And that's unfair. Good. It's not good. And it wasn't part of the clinical trial because sexual satisfaction afterwards have not been part of the clinical trial. 
And because it isn't part of the clinical trial, it's not part of the counseling that, or the pre-counseling. Right. That was gonna. That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say it's. I'm pretty sure it's not part of the pre-counseling uh, either. Yeah. Um, you know, research yeah. is gonna have the research community is gonna have to do a better job. Gonna have to step it up. Yep. <sighs> Go to urbanhealthtoday.com for the links and coverage of these articles. And remember. You only have one life and one body, so you got to do your best to make it count so your years are full of life and full of health. Information equals transformation, so small steps each day, people, and you'll see a difference. I'm sure of it. All right, that's all we're going to do for today. Bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.